Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. What is it? It's me, Mr. Pensler. You, this must be my unlucky day. Kid, we've been through this before. You just don't got what it takes to write for large print hard-boiled detective stories, the number one Pulp Fiction magazine for far-sighted folks. Please, Mr. Pensler, I've been reading all the back issues of large print hard-boiled detective stories, and I think I get what you're looking for. Okay, what do you got? All right, how about this one? Dirt Nap for Mr. Confucius. I hear potential. Read a little bit to me. After a mysterious stranger blackjacked my uncle, I needed a clean slate. That's how I found myself living in the Seedmore Hotel on the edge of the Tenderloin District. I had two best friends, my 45 automatic and a bottle of old vulture whiskey substitute. It was another chilly day. Stop, the... you're killing me. That's terrible, kid. What's wrong with it? Too many words. Here at Large Print Hardboiled Detective Stories, our readers want you to get to the point. Shock, panic, car noise, big heart slam, boom boom, lights out. I could put in more stuff like that, Mr. Pensler. More stuff like that? Kid, you're missing the point. I just read you a whole story. That was Farewell My Monkey by Murray Champion. Now that's a large print detective story. Can I read you some of this one? A clean towel for Sister Snooky? No, I already know I hate it. Kid, it's 1938. People are busy. The readers of large print hard-boiled detective stories, they want Stranglers in the Night by Huge Cornbelt. They want Please Omit Bullets by Earl Frankie Casey. They want Your Blood Type or Mine by John D. Studebaker. The only people who got time to read your F. Scott Flaubert crap is maybe somebody with a broken leg, stuck in a wheelchair, staring across the alley at other people's windows. Wait, wait, say that again. Uh, I already forgot it. Mr. Pensler, I, I gotta go. I, I think I got an idea for a great detective story. Okay, photographer with a broken leg, stuck in a wheelchair, staring across the alley at other people's windows. A pretty young English woman living in France forms a romantic attachment and becomes a, a suspect in the theft of a jeweled snuff box in the shape of a pocket watch said to have belonged to Napoleon. Meanwhile, wealthy art connoisseur Dwight Stanhop and his daughters, sensible Betty and neurotic Eleanor, have invited... I can hear you out there, kid. Too much plot. He's right. I could probably cut one of the daughters. I think I'll call the story Lethal Encore for the Devil's Bargain from Limbo. Too long. Or maybe just Rear Window. Listen to this radio show. I gotta go right. And now he plays Merle the Nurse and Ding Dong, You're Dead, Colin McEnroe. All right. So, in fact, the beloved property, fictional property that we call Rear Window, did start in exactly that kind of an environment in those kinds of pulp magazines uh, that were, well, actually, this the one in question is, was called Dime Detective. We're going to tell you about this. Uh, but what we want to do, why we're doing this, maybe that's where I should begin, why we're doing this is because, of course, at the Hartford stage, uh, Kevin Bacon is starring in a different version of Rear Window. And it's so popular that uh, we hate even to mention it to you because you can't go. Actually, I guess there's some standing room tickets that are maybe still available in between now and when it closes on Sunday the 15th. But it sold out almost immediately, uh, partly on the star power of Kevin Bacon, partly on the appeal uh, of this story because it's a story everybody knows or thinks that they know. Uh, it can be told several different ways, as we're going to discover here. So we're going to tell you 
a little bit about the enduring popularity of this story. You know, why does why does Rear Window uh, make people's eyes light up? Uh, and we're also going to talk to you about the arc uh, of this story, what it has existed as uh, in its different iterations. And we're also going to talk very specifically about what uh, the Hartford stage production is getting at, uh, maybe getting at a whole bunch of uh, new sensibilities or old sensibilities that, that marry the original version of it uh, to its author. Uh, and that sounds a little mysterious. We'll explain it in just a second. Let me tell you who's participating in the show today. Uh, down the line in the Empire, NPR studios uh, in Manhattan is uh, Keith Redeen. He wrote the Hartford Stage's current adaptation of Rear Window. In studio with me are the producers of that adaptation, uh, Charlie Lyons and Jay Russell. Uh, and then uh, joining us by phone uh, is film critic and film historian David Thompson, the author of more than 30 books on film, including most recently, like last week, it came out, How to Watch a Movie. So in just a second, uh, we're going to just spend a little bit of time with the movie. That's the rear window that most of you know best. Um, but Charlie, maybe just for starters here, you could explain um, the different ways this thing existed. So, so what was it at first? First of all, it wasn't even called rear window at the beginning. Well, uh, Cornell Woolrich, uh, who wrote under a variety of names, including William Irish and George Hopley, is considered to be one of the great mystery writers, one of the great noir writers of all time. And uh, I believe uh, Frank can probably tell us whether this claim is accurate, but he is said to have had more titles adapted to the screen than any other crime novelist. And so I was just sort of scanning a list, convicted, Street of Chance, Leopard Man, Phantom Lady, Black Angel, Rear Window. Also, it had to be murder. It uh, had a couple of different titles. Uh, and and one, one thing we should say is, so these, these the kind of magazine that Dime Detective was, was uh, so this story, It Had to Be Murder, appeared in Dime Detective, 1942. And, right. and if you look at the covers of those magazines, they look kind of cheesy, tawdry. They're these, you know, very uh, vampy-looking pictures of um, some guy with a gun in his undershirt, and there's a beautiful woman, and there's something a little bit formulaic and seedy about it. But in fact, some really great writers were writing for, for Dime Detective and its compatriots, uh, including Raymond Chan. Right. I mean, that's right. Lady in the Lake uh, originally appeared as a story in Dime Detective. That's right. And, uh, you know, Cornell was a, a very complicated guy. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, his setups were were very exciting to us as storytellers. And obviously, Keith, you know, had an enormous skill in this area. But it was always uh, amnesia. Uh, discomfort, uh, darkness, um, you know, a little bit of blood, a body that you didn't recognize, a location that was unfamiliar, and an impending sense of doom. And so it was a fantastic setup. And and so Keith Redeen, before we go to David Thompson, Keith Redeen, so this original story, this uh, story written by Cornell Woolrich, it was called It Had to Be Murder, and it had some of the elements that people know from Rear Window, right? What what was the story? Uh, what did Cornell Woolrich write about? Well, he was basically writing the plot of the murder mystery, a man stuck in a chair, um, and you don't even find out until the last sentence why he's stuck in that chair. 
um, observes something across the way, across the courtyard, what he thinks is a murder and becomes convinced that he's seen something terrible happen, becomes somewhat obsessed with it, and then um, tries to convince everyone around him that um, you know what he's seen has actually happened. But in that story, that protagonist... Um, we know nothing about him. He offers information about everyone else around him, but nothing about himself. So we don't know really who he is, how he got there, what his background is, what uh, job he has, if any, um, how long he's been there. So the story really gave us a lot of leeway in terms of writing a stage noir and filling in a lot of that uh, with a modern sensibility. Right. There's actually, to your point, uh, your original point there, there's kind of a cute reveal at the end. Throughout the story, we hear these references to I was hopscotching across the room or I wasn't used to being immobile or something like that, you know, uh, or I didn't know how to fill my time. But he doesn't tell you why. And then at the end, spoiler alert, but in the, in the at the end, the, the doctor comes to cut it. After he's had all this incredible adventure, um, uh, the doctor says, uh, well, I guess it's time to cut your cast off that broken leg so you can get busy, you know, no more sitting around idly or something. Uh, so there's this little cute reveal uh, about the broken leg. Um, but So well, I, I want to come back to the story, what it's about, who Wool- Woolrich was, because that's very important to the new production of this. But let's um, uh, quickly uh, journey over to David Thompson, as I say, film critic. Film historian, author of 30 books or more about film, including How to Watch a Movie, uh, which came out this week. And in fact, there's a, a chunk of this book that's uh, devoted to Rear Window, uh, and Grace Kelly herself uh, can be seen gazing out from the cover. Uh, so we're right on point here. Um, David Thompson, uh, how does this movie stand? Well, actually, let me ask a different question. This movie, which came out, uh, I think, in 1954, uh, the same year as Dial M for Murder. Um, why did it grab people? What were the qualities of it that made it this enduring masterpiece? Well, I think it's um, it's a very good suspense mystery film. Uh, it's also got elements of a romance, even some comedy. And I think because there is wonderful chemistry between... James Stewart and Grace Kelly, who play the central couple. And also, I think, because there's real chemistry being between Hitchcock and Grace Kelly. Um, and I think the other thing, and I think this is what really motivated Hitchcock, it really is a movie about watching, about voyeurism, and about movie going. He took the story, and I think he was excited by the visual dynamic of the courtyard, and these several windows that the hero is looking at, which are all like movie screens. And I think he sees it as a kind of metaphor for the way we are looking at movie screens, too. Beyond that, I would say that it is simply still, years later, a wonderfully accomplished, entertaining, suspenseful, satisfying movie. Uh, It's one of my favorite Hitchcock films, and I don't think it's dated at all. 
Um, I'm going to push back against uh, what, what you said a little bit, or, or not push back against it, but but maybe um, suggest an additional way of thinking about it. Uh, it's certainly a, a movie about watching and about the way we watch uh, movies, uh, the way we watch people watching in movies. Uh, it's about all those things. Hitchcock himself said it's very much about the way that people are just naturally peeping toms that you know everybody likes to look at everybody else. I think it's I think it also might be maybe subconsciously, maybe not a conscious choice by Hitchcock about television. It's 1954, so there's 10 million or more TV sets in the United States. Um, the world has kind of changed that way, and you can choose what screen you want to look at. And one of the things that's happening with Jimmy Stewart's character is he can see all of these different quote-unquote programs. He can see Ross Bagdasarian there playing the piano, and he can see the pneumatic women, uh, young woman dancing and, and the newlyweds and the older people and their dog. He can pick the program he wants to watch, and he ultimately settles, obviously, on this dark and dangerous and upsetting uh, thing that he wants to watch. Um, but in some ways, he's kind of watching television. I don't know. Well, I think that's a very interesting, fair point. Um, something you leave out is that as the story develops, the conflict between the different channels, if you take my point, that he's watching becomes acute because he's intensely involved with the murderer's window, if you like, when he realizes that maybe a woman in one of the other windows is on the point of committing suicide and something should be done to help her. So that the level of suspense and conflict gets really quite complicated. Another thing is that in in the movie, the Grace Kelly character wants to get Stuart to marry her. And in virtually every window they look at, there is a different stage of marriage being depicted. It's very cleverly, amusingly organized in that way. Right. And in, in, in a way, I think you sort of point this out in the book, uh, in a way, um, they almost have to overcome the darkness of a Thorwald marriage uh, in order to, I mean, yeah. you know, she, she, yeah. slips that, she slips on the Thorwald ring. Uh, Crucial plot moment. Yeah. 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 And yeah. in a way, they're sort of saying, you know what? Yes, some marriages really go south and people kill each other, but, yeah. but we're going to get married anyway. Hitchcock is doing that in a very ironic way. And I think that one of the reasons I like this film so much is that it's a little bit lighter than, say, a film like Vertigo. And I like Hitchcock when he's being amusing, too. Um, the other thing that uh, that I would um, say is, or, or wonder about anyway, um, David Thompson, is whether this movie is also a little bit about post-war I mean, anxiety might not be the right word. Anxiety slash curiosity about one's neighbors. So World War II happens. People come back. And they don't always come back to the same place that they left. Um, more of them settled in cities. More people come into the United States from other places. Uh, and, and so you have people, uh, when we go back to the Woolrich story uh, with, uh, with Keith and, and the producers here, we can talk a little bit about what's in that. Uh, but 1942 is a different time. In 54, you've got these urban environments where your neighbors are different from you. You know, they're, they're living very different mm. lives. And, and so life is less homogenized. Uh, I think that's a bit of a. I think that's a bit of a, a reach. Uh, okay. I think Hitchcock was interested in the dynamics of movie making, not very much interested in the construction of society. Um, one thing about the movie, in hindsight, if you think that it's set in Manhattan, it's a very very white film, mm -hmm. which which I don't think would be the same today if you were to re redo it. 
I take the point about there being an allusion to TV. The other points you make, I I, I don't feel that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, uh, my reach should exceed my grasp, uh, and my it's grasp is always shaky. Yeah. Um, we're talking to David Thompson uh, right now, uh, uh, who wrote uh, most recently How to Watch a Movie. So one of the other points that you make is that, you know, there's the bones of the story uh, that Cornell Woolrich gives us. There's Hitchcock's vision of the story, but then there's sort of everybody else. And, and for yeah. you, Grace Kelly, in a way, makes this movie. Into, I mean, obviously, Jimmy Stewart's also just, you know, a very witty, engaging uh, presence. But Kelly, in a way, can sell things in this movie that nobody put there in the first place. Well, you know, there's a very important aspect to it, very obvious, but she moves. Stuart is immobile. He is in a wheelchair almost all the time. She moves around. Uh, She's the one who goes over to the apartment when the murderer is out and tries to find a clue. She climbs up the fire escape, climbs into the window. She's the active person in the film, and active people in films always get a little more sympathy and a little more attention, I think. And, you know, that is Grace Kelly at her peak, and she's beautifully dressed in the film. She plays a fashion model. She was dressed for the film by Edith Head. The clothes are very good. John Michael Hayes, who did the screenplay, gives her very funny lines. And, of course, her character is not in the short story mm-hmm. at all. Right. And when we, we, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about who who's there instead and then who's there uh, on the stage version. And, and there's a way in which, you know, just to go back to one of your earlier points, that this is a story about marriage, about people deciding to get married, that this adventure, um, I think the J- Jimmy Stewart's Jeff suddenly sees this woman in a different way, that she's okay. not just ornamental. Yeah. No, I think I think he's won over. And you're left with the conclusion that they are going to get married. Whether he will continue to be a photographer who travels the world shooting dangerous things, that's an open question. But we feel they're going to be together. Right. I mean, because, in fact, he's learned to sit still. That's the other thing. I mean, he's not great (laughs) at it, but he's learned to sit still. Um, All right. David Thompson, so great to talk to you. So great to get that perspective on the movie. Uh, David Thompson's new book is How to Watch a Movie. It's about a lot of movies, including Rear Window. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to the rest of our guests here about the short story and how it made its way onto the stage. All right. Welcome back to our show about Rear Window. Rear Window has been a bunch of different things. It started out as a short story by a different name uh, in a sort of Pulp Fiction magazine. Uh, Then it became an acclaimed Hitchcock movie. Now uh, it's playing at the Harvard Stage Company with Kevin Bacon uh, through November 15th. But I shouldn't even be mentioning this to you because you probably can't go. Uh, Although there are a limited number of standing room tickets uh, possibly uh, available. Um, I've seen it. Uh, I I recommend it. Uh, But... um, for reasons that we will now go into quite a bit over the rest of the show, uh, I caution you about showing up with expectations that are based on Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly because this is a very, very different production. So um, 
Uh, by the way, as we go along here, either of you have seen the stage production or you have feelings uh, about the story itself and its enduring hold on us, you can give us a call at 860-275-7266. We're live here in the afternoon, 860-275-7266. And, of course, as usual, you may tweet at us. We encourage you to tweet at us at WNPR Colin, where Greg Hill, our tweet master, is awaiting your tweets. Um, and he's tweeting himself already. All right. So, um, Jay Russell, let's get you involved. Uh, one of the producers of a Rear Window at Hartford Stage. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. Our, uh, one of our producers here, uh, Jonathan McNichol, pointed out, Dial in for Murder and Rear Window, the movies, came out at the same time, our same year, 54. Quite a year, uh, quite a home run year for Hitchcock. Um, they... Um, Dial in for murder had been a stage play. Um, they both have, uh, as Jonathan says, they both seem like plays in a way. You know, the rear window of the movie seems like a play on the surface of it. And then you realize, for all these David Thompson reasons, that it's really more a movie about movies, about editing, shooting, angles, stuff like that. It's not really uh, naturally a play. So how did it how did you guys decide it was going to be a play? Well, first of all, <clears throat> that's a very good point in that I think that uh, Rear Window, the film, is uh, one of the most cinematic uh, pieces of work I've ever seen because there are long passages in that movie where there's no dialogue whatsoever. It's 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 extremely cinematic. Uh, in this case, I think in every creative endeavor, there's always that spark of an idea, you know, the conceptual Big Bang. And... In this case, you know, I, I mean, and it can come from anywhere. You hear a piece of music and it reminds you of something or it's a conversation. And in this case, it was, uh, you know, has there ever been a stage version of the short story called Rear Window or It Had to Be Murder? And with a little investigation, you know, we found out not. And, you know, and an idea is is nothing unless you act upon it. Mm-hmm. And and so this was a case where there was an idea. Then I spoke to it with Charlie. I spoke to it with Keith Redeen, and 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 it confirmed this notion that this is this is a good idea. So that that's kind of where it started was just a spark of an idea of had this ever been put on stage. And then the process of of making it its own original piece. Uh, that was the just really fun and wonderful and creative process with Charlie and Keith on this. Um, and, and so, um, Charlie, there were even some questions about who actually owned this, right? This, the, this title has a very complicated provenance in terms of who owns the rights. Sure. Uh, you know, for us, it's simple that when you go to try and get the rights, acquire the rights to something, you get a very clear determination as to who controls them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. Before we came on the show, we were looking at all the various short stories that had found their way to the screen. Everything from Annabelle Lee, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, App Pupil. This is just the A's and B's. Bicentennial Man, The Body Snatcher, Breakfast at Tiffany's. You can go right down the list. Uh, and so, you know, for us, it was simple to get the rights to the short story. And then you're confined to what that short story is. The beauty of this, it was essentially 20 pages. Uh, It left enormous blanks. And so you bring in uh, somebody like Keith Rudin and you get to expand it in every direction and um, uh, make it something completely original because Cornell had this magnificent way of leaving a lot up to the imagination. Uh, but Jay Russell, there was also some guy who bought up rights to things, right? 
I'm sorry. So, uh, there, there was some guy who bought up rights to things, and he got the rights to a rear window for some bargain basement price. Well, that gets into a whole area of, of technicalities that, frankly, we never really went into that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we simply wanted to know, is this something that we can pursue? Mm-hmm. And, and if we had been told no, well, then that would have been, again, back to my point, then that would have been an idea that, oh, okay, oh, well. But it, but we were told this is something we can pursue because it exists as its own piece of work, and and we found that piece of work fascinating. And and again, the n- with no offense towards the film uh, at all, we just felt this was a piece of material worth adapting for the stage, and that's so that's how we pursued it. So let's talk about uh, that adaptation uh, pro- process. So Keith Rudine, um, when you came in, at some point. Uh, clearly from what we see on stage, you decided to fuse the story that Cornell Woolrich wrote with the story of Cornell Woolrich. Explain for people who don't know what I'm talking about what is meant by that. Well, Cornell Woolrich was a really fascinating, uh, dark person. Um, uh, He started off writing very kind of slick, sophisticated novels of the F. Scott Fitzgerald mode uh, about the beautiful young people of the lost generation, but then felt um, that that was ultimately not satisfying or where he wanted to go. And he was fascinated by the dark side of human existence. Um, You know, he was a loner and then uh, doing research on him because I was so fascinated by his work and the darkness in his work and the noir atmosphere that he creates, found out that um, even though he had a very short marriage, that he was um, a repressed homosexual and that um, you know ultimately for the rest of his life, he became um, an alcoholic. And at first he lived with his mother in various hotel rooms and then ended up the rest of his life living alone. And a, a crazy ironic thing happened that um, after writing It Had to Be Murder, A Rear Window, and a number of these stories, towards the end of his life when he's alone in this hotel room not taking care of himself, um, that he had gangrene with his foot and then had to have his foot amputated and ended up the end of his life alone in a room, stuck in a chair because of what happened to his leg staring out the window, watching people. And I thought that kind of came full circle in a very strange, eerie, wonderful way of that his life became rear window in an odd way. But there were so many aspects of his darkness, of his um, disturbing uh, life that was in his material. And I really felt like looking at the story today that if he was alive – and had the freedom to write about the various social, sexual, economic, political things that are going on now, and had that freedom, he would write this stage version. Yeah, and so let's go back to the story itself, because it's kind of interesting uh, what goes on there. So the the bones of what we know about Rear Window, a lot of them are, are right there in the short story. But it is a slightly different, slightly different feel from what Hitchcock does. And right from the start, even the neighborhood itself is kind of different, right? He, the narrator, uh, Jeff the narrator, is saying, well, there were houses I could see, right? He's, he's in what sort of feels more like a house. I think he talks about a bay window out the back of, of his bedroom. And he, says, and he says there are houses that he can see. And he decides 
that most of them aren't that interesting. And then there's this one building that he can see. Uh, and he says um, uh, the other houses were more like furnished rooms that people were renting. This building was built for yeah, more as an apartment building, a, a building of flats, I think thinks, uh, he calls it. And, and it, I think one of the things that, may, that propels noir fiction or propelled noir fiction in its, its peak era was that notion that around you, dark things might be happening. You know, if you looked in the right window or the wrong window, um, you might see something. Um, and, and I think there's that sort of sense, once again, it's, of him looking at these various buildings and then suddenly seeing this thing that he can't stop looking at. How did that resonate with you? Well, um, I think that inside we're all peeping toms, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. <laughs> and I think that Cornel Woolrich in his genius um, said that we all have that impulse, and given uh, the fact that we might be stuck in one place, we would be seeing something and obviously becoming fascinated. Getting to your point of like if we were looking at all those television screens, we whether we want to admit it or not, have a tendency to be drawn to the lurid, you know, the the violent, the the darkness. Um, and so that's what we're going to be watching. And if you're stuck there and have nothing else to look at, you know, there is the danger that you become obsessed with it. The other fact that, uh, as you mentioned in the story, as opposed to the Hitchcock, uh, nothing against the Hitchcock movie, which is wonderful and, and delightful and charming and suspenseful all on its own. But that's about a world that Hitchcock creates of glamour. <laughs> and it's not really a noir film. And we were all very interested in creating a stage noir, which again is about darkness, is about um, characters living on the edge. Um, and I felt like the description in the story of the inhabitants of that building, of their social class, of that neighborhood was a much darker, much grittier world um, than the world of Hitchcock. I think a point that Hitchcock makes uh, at some point about his movie is that in some ways um, cutting back to Jimmy Stewart based on what he's seeing, you realize that what you see changes you, right? If you're watching a little dog be lowered in a basket um, and you're smiling and stuff like that, then you, the watcher, are participating in something that's kind of cute or sweet. If you're watching Miss Torso up there uh, gyrating, uh, then suddenly maybe you're kind of more of a peeping Tom or a dirty old man or, or whatever it is that what you watch changes changes you. I feel like in the Woolrich thing, that's sort of there. But but certainly in your play, Keith Redine, what's there is, no, we already have our darkness in us. You know, in other words, the, the Jeff, your Jeff, your, as a watcher, is already full of an incredible amount of darkness. It's almost just being mirrored back to him by what he looks at. Yeah, but I think that Cornell Woolrich um, had that in him, which is you know, aspects of that that we brought into the character. But I would argue that all the people that bought all those dime, you know, Pulp Fiction magazines and read those stories and saw those noirs had that similar darkness, that what he was tapping into was that dark impulse that we all have in ourselves and that, as you said, is mirrored back to us when we read those stories or see those films. And I felt like with Charlie and Jay, and we all agreed on this, that we wanted to go to that place to embrace it, uh, the darkness, the voyeuristic, 
the peeping Tom that we all have within ourselves. That was oddly contemporary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and one thing I would add uh, that, that makes Keith's adaptation unique, and, and it applies to what David uh, mentioned earlier describing the film, is a big difference here is uh, uh, in, in the Hitchcock film, the Jimmy Stewart character is a very reliable narrator. Mm. He's right at the beginning. He's right at the middle. He's right at the end. And I think what's really interesting about Keith's adaptation, and not to give anything away, but I think that uh, Keith's character, uh, again, using the source, the short story as a launching point, he, he creates a possibly unreliable character. And I think it increases the mystery then of is what we what we the audience are seeing uh, on stage is that an accurate uh, depiction of what's actually happening, or is this coming from the the unreliable narrator's mind? Is that right, Keith? Yeah, I would agree, and I think that again, not to get into too much comparison with the film, because he's using icons like Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly, and you know, literally a heavy like Raymond Burr. There's never a doubt in the audience's mind that he is correct, that this murder actually happened, and that he's going to get the girl at the end. What I find exciting about this stage version, and audiences have said this over and over again, is when they come in and they watch the stage version, very quickly they see this is not the story that they think they know. And about halfway through, uh, as Jay and Charlie have said, you know, he becomes an unreliable narrator to the point which we have much greater suspense because we don't know how it's going to turn out. And for all we know, maybe he's wrong. I, you know, I, I just want to get back to that point about icons. And I know we don't want to sit here making all kinds of comparisons, but I, I think it's an inevitable that one of the things that, that happens, and Jay Russell, I'm going to start with you on this, um, is, you know, maybe even more than you might have imagined going into this project, people are bringing their iconic notions in with them. And so um, I will now be the only person to make an analogy or a comparison between uh, the stage version of Rear Window and the movie The Martian. Um, and so, <laughs> so here's my com- so, so that's a great one. Yeah. I'm Are you ready? For that. Are you ready? Okay. So the, the Martian is sometimes being is a, a genre that now gets described sometimes as competence porn. You know that it's about highly competent people dealing with the situa- situation really effectively. You know everybody's kind of smart. It's one of those Aaron Sorkin things, right? People are really smart. They talk really well. They think really well. They get these horrible problems and they solve them. And the the film film version of Rear Window is a little bit of competence porn, too, in the sense that, wow, he's like stuck in a wheelchair, you know, and, and you know, and she's never done anything like this. They crack this case, you know, and then they deal with this murderer. And so, um, just so, Jay, you know, Keith's, in Keith's version, there's a violation of that covenant, right? I mean, not only is Jeff an unreliable narrator, he's just really flawed. You know, he's fragile. Uh, he's he's already, he's pre-broken in some ways. There's It's not just his leg that's broken. There's all kinds of other stuff that's broken in him. And so you kind of are... My sense the night that I saw it was that the audience was really struggling a little bit against these two things. I mean, I think Bacon, Kevin Bacon is really great in this play. I think he's terrific. But boy, I feel like he has to vault over Jimmy Stewart to to get us to see, oh no, this this isn't going to be competence porn. Oh well. Well, first of all, and I mean to your very last point, I think it's a uh, it's a real comment on how good Kevin is in this play. The fact that he can, in a very short amount of time, 
take the audience away from thinking about uh, this other portrayal of, of a similar character. They're not the same character because, as you say, uh, in, 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 in our portrayal of, of Jeffries, he, he has been a very competent reporter. Um, but I think this broken leg suggests, as you said, the broken leg suggests that now that he's holed up in this apartment, he's, he's going very internal and and so the the uh, the, the competence uh, uh, level is decreasing as the longer he's stuck in this apartment, and and so I think it's I think it's uh, again just a real uh, testament to what Kevin is doing is he makes us forget all of that and he draws us into this new character that is in a familiar situation. Um, and Charlie Lyons, do have you? Got it in the sense of how audiences do react to this. I'm a, well. I know from talking to some people, they really had a hard time with this. Uh, I my impression of the audiences is that they've uh, first of all, Hartford's a really sophisticated audience. It's mm-hmm. a great theater town. Um, you, you know, one person we're not mentioning here that is uh, uh, obviously a, a creative flashpoint with the whole thing and with our choice to be here and our choice to be with Hartford is uh, we had this dream of creating sort of a a graphic novel on stage that was shared with Darko. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Darko is an exceptionally skilled guy, someone that does, uh, you know, huge scale operas in Los Angeles and and uh, all over the United States, as, as well as he's a Shakespearean scholar. So his depth of knowledge about human character and human behavior and how he portrays that and his willingness to sort of uh, 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 embrace things that are more complex about human character was what totally uh, uh, had us in and I think was very exciting to the actors that are involved. So I think the audiences have had uh, a uniformly positive but complicated reactions to it because – what it does is it exposes this idea that, well, we're all looking at things we shouldn't be looking at. And if we're all in a similar situation, no matter what kind of level of alpha character we might be in our real life, if we get laid up, our mind is liable to play tricks with us. And, you know, the outcome is is confusing. And so I think uh, it's been a very uh, provocative piece of literature I think, to Keith's skill and Darko's skill to transport people to a place much like filmmakers like Alexander Inurito or Mike Nichols is able to do. They they are willing to ask more complicated questions. Oh, yeah, just to make that clear, uh, Darko, of course, of course, is Darko Trezhnik, who is the artistic director of the Hartford Stage Company. Uh, probably something should be said about Alexander Dodge, too, the guy who created yep. this set, which, I mean, I, I love your idea of it being a graphic novel on stage. It really is. And we won't give this away, but one of the questions you might have walking in there is how, how do you – because when you really think about it, back to that original point, in a way that Dial M for Murder can be staged and was staged, Rear Window has an immediate problem, which is that there are two important perspectives. Uh, the perspective within the apartment in which conversations are being had uh, between Jeff and anybody else who comes in to see him, uh, and then the outside that he's looking at. But you have to be able to get to that outside. And it's harder to do uh, in a theatrical environment. So the way that gets solved is something we're not going to tell you other than to say the audience gasps the first time they see it. Uh, all right. So we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll finish up our conversation about Rear Window after this. 
hate to interrupt the flow of the show, but I have some exciting news. I'm engaged. I'm going to be the next Mrs. Lars Thorwald. He's a widower, and he seems very nice. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Dan Schultz. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Thelma Ritter. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Here and Now staff jitterbugging in their apartment, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, Ask a Philosopher. And now... Back to Colin. Yeah, actually, uh, tomorrow's show, we're going to have uh, some leading philosophers on. Uh, this is all suggested to me by Shelley Kagan on a podcast that we were on together, a podcast called Unorthodox, where he was saying, you know, I mean, every night on cable news and uh, every day on talk radio, people argue all the time about right and wrong, you know, what's right, what's wrong, what's, a, you know, because really, these people called philosophers, it's, they, they're never on those shows, but they actually do have some kind of framework for thinking about those questions. How come we don't use them more? It's like we should have one behind glass, break glass in case of emergency, get the philosopher out. That's what we're going to do tomorrow. We're going to break that glass and bring our philosophers out uh, and help us figure this stuff out. I also, in terms of thank yous, anytime I say to Betsy Kaplan, I got this. It's all under control. That means she's got like two hours of running around <laughs> tie up loose ends for me. So Betsy Kaplan, as usual, has jumped in to save the day in lots of ways that I could never explain. Uh, all right. So we're talking about Rear Window, the adaptation that's at the Hartford Stage Company. Uh, Keith Redeen is with us uh, via the NPR studios in Manhattan. Charlie Lyons and Jay Russell, uh, they're the producers uh, of Rear Window at Hartford Stage. Keith Redeen is the guy who wrote the uh, adaptation. Um, so um, so, Jay Russell, and, and uh, we'll start with you, but we're uh, talking uh, during the break about the fact that one of the things we haven't talked about so far is um, in lieu uh, of Grace Kelly. Not exactly in lieu of Grace Kelly. And in a way that let's go. We'll, we can go back to this story, this, this original story uh, by uh, Cornell Woolrich, which is like this like. Edward Hopper painting come to life or, or something um, is uh, we, we have this manservant basically named Sam. So um, uh, we'll, we'll get to Keith in a second. But but explain for people who don't know and who haven't seen the show what Sam has turned into. Well, uh, as you say, in the short story, there is this character uh, who is a uh, servant. I put in quotation marks named Sam and uh, and and and. Just like Woolrich's writing of the whole piece, he leaves all kinds of room for uh, uh, interpretation of, of who Sam is and what the relationship is. And Sam, in the short story and in the play, um, is the is the character who gets recruited to help solve the mystery across the way. And 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 this bond forms between uh, Jeffries, played by Kevin Bacon, and Sam played wonderfully by a, a young actor named McKinley Belcher III. Uh, they form this amazing relationship on stage as, as Sam is recruited to do all those things uh, that, that Jeffries can't do because he has a broken leg. Um, so one of the things, uh, Keith Rudine, that is complicated, and it, it's interesting because um, as I saw the play, uh, one of the people that I saw it with afterwards, I was sort of saying, wow, you know, just even having this kind of homoerotic subcurrent, uh, undercurrent between uh, Kevin Bacon and McKinley Belcher is, I mean, that's pretty um, – Amazing and, and and pretty startling uh, and pretty paradigm shifting. Um, and the person I saw it with, who's a keen observer of theater, ordinarily said, are, "Are you really sure that that's what was going on?" I said, "Yes, that, that wasn't subtle at all. No, I mean, and and but I think once again, it's 
you know, it's it's abundantly there in the script, but you have to go like 175 percent because somehow or other you're you're still fighting that tide of the deeply heterosexual Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly relationship. But but talk a little bit about why you decided to go the way you went between Sam and Jeff in this. Well, again, I think it goes back to uh, the life of Cornell Warwick and, and what he was, I think, writing between the lines, which was um, this kind of homoerotic um, sexuality uh, that's very subtle and that um, that um, I think is there in his life and in his writing. I mean, in the story, he talks about, uh, Sam, get me those binoculars from that cruise we took together. Mm-hmm. Or, Sam, do you remember when we spent that time together? So there's clearly, even in the story, references and suggestions that it's more than just somebody that he's hired to help him do chores. And I felt that, again, that given uh, that the audience sensibility is, I, I think, more sophisticated in that way of um, – the sexuality, that um, they would be accepting of that and that what is, I think, implicit in a lot of his stories could come out, um, literally, you know, mm-hmm. come out. It's interesting, though. I, I overheard two patrons, uh, you know, an older couple, and, and the guy said, wait, you know, during the show, he was like, wait, there's there's no Grace Kelly character. And um, the woman said, no, the, the black man is a Grace Kelly character. And, and in a way, he is our love interest beyond oh, yeah. you know, helping him out with these um, chores. Oh, I, I feel that absolutely. And then, Charlie, the other thing that's happening there is kind of a hashtag, hashtag Black Lives Matter uh, so, uh, undercurrent here. And I mean, in a way for me, the way I processed this anyway was this is also um, – a play, a work about how vulnerable we are and how vulnerable we are in in chaotic urban settings. Yeah. So for the Kevin Bacon character, you know, I mean, this is a time where it was really dangerous to be gay. You know, you had to be careful who you said what to. Uh, and Cornell Woolrich certainly lived a life in the 20s and 30s where being gay would have been problematic and dangerous for him. Uh, but also what you feel, though, is that Sam is coming out of a whole other environment where – like uh, I spent a lot of this play worrying about Sam um, in a different way than I would have worried about Grace Kelly because I feel like, well, it's very clear in the way that Keith has written it. Sam could get beaten up or killed by any number of people, mm-hmm. not just Lars Thorwald. Uh, uh, Sam was our uh, beacon of morality in the piece, uh, and he was a reflection of our worst uh, tendencies. And we are very comfortable with the notion that uh, human character may improve, but it doesn't necessarily go away. And uh, the fact that uh, current events have sort of walked all over something that we've been in process with for uh, for a number of years is actually coincidental. Mm-hmm. That uh, the fact that it, that the the uh, narrative is so shrill and the uh, the sensitivities are so uh, irritated right now just sort of coincides with our belief that, my God, can you imagine what it was like to manage those uh, 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 behavioral and existential issues in that time? Yeah, that's. I'm amazed to hear you say that that was in the works for a while. And Keith, uh, maybe you could say a little bit more about this because, once again, no real spoiler intended here, but 
um, Boyne, who's the the cop, who's uh, the character who has survived from the short story. Um, he's you know, so he's the leading cop in the story. He has this whole other separate interest in Sam. Uh, like he would like to do something to, uh, to Sam. He's menacing uh, towards Sam for reasons kind of unrelated to the rest of the plot. So uh, as Charlie's saying, so you had that in there uh, even before it became front and center in the national dialogue the way it is now. Yeah, we've been working on this for clearly uh, over two years now. And when that happened, it wasn't with the, the idea of pushing any kind of social political agenda. What I realized in doing the research uh, of that time period was if we set the play at the time that the short story was written, and my feeling is if a cop came in and there's a young black guy standing there, you know, that they're not going to necessarily have a polite conversation, that um, there is a, a real jockeying of status and um, the police force, again, doing the research of that period, was being accused of all kinds of racial mistreatment that echoed, I felt, like what hasn't changed, unfortunately. So it was a um, – it really was a coincidence, sadly, that um, – events sort of overtook what we were doing in terms of a plot. Um, I guess we've got about a minute left. Um, so, um, Jay, um, what was the cell like for Kevin Bacon? In other words, you're, you're, or you or Charlie, I don't know who, who had this, who knows more about that conversation, but you're saying to him, yeah, you're going to play this iconic role, except not. It's going to be like a Tennessee Williams character injected into a, uh, an Alfred Hitchcock movie. How, was he eager right away to do that? Well, the the um, I, I've been friends and 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 uh, colleagues with Kevin Bacon for over thirty years, so the conversation was easy for me to broach with him. But his first question was, "Is this going to be a new character?" And I said, "Yes, it is." So that's why we would love you to read it because you you're the 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 sort of actor who can bring something new to this and create your own character. And he said, okay, I'll read it. Because if we, if I had said to him, you know, oh, well, this is just a rehash of something you already know, he wouldn't have been interested. It was, it was, it was because we were not doing a cover song of the film. That's why he was interested. We're going to have to stop it there. I will say, though, I was, I had all kinds of weird expectations and maybe even an inclination to resist Kevin Bacon. Uh, He's really amazing, actually. He's yeah. really, really good. Yeah. Maybe better than a lot of people are giving him credit for right now. Yeah. So anyway, thanks very much to David Thompson, who's not here anymore, but to Keith Redeen, uh, the uh, writer of the adaptation, Charlie Lyons and Jay Russell are the producers of the self-same rear window at Hartford Stage, running through the 15th. Good luck getting in. Uh, but maybe it'll go someplace else. Maybe in another city you'll have a chance to see it and pay a lot more money. Greg, come here. What? Look through that window. See, that woman is editing a manuscript, but the guy who wrote it is coming to kill her, and only that old lady can stop it. That's not a window. That's your TV. You're watching Murder, She Wrote. Oh.